0: While they're finishing passing that out, I'll mention that we have been studying through the Gospel of Luke. And we now find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, and in the midst of some very practical exhortations by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the beginning of chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, we saw some excellent principles given by the Lord Jesus that help us to battle against the fear of men. To help us battle against fearing people and basing our actions on our fear of people rather than on our desire to please God. And what we saw there is that the Lord Jesus commanded us that we are not to fear men who can destroy the body, but we are to fear the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that is God Himself. So we saw there it's a battle against the fear of men. We should fear the God of hell. Satan's not the God of hell. Our God is the Lord of hell. He rules over that realm. He casts people into it. Christ has the keys of Hades and of death. Not Satan. We also learn from that text we're to realize that we're better than the birds. Jesus said that there aren't two sparrows that fall to the ground without the Father knowing it. And how much more does he look after his own people than the birds? We also learn from that it's a battle against the fear of men with a desire for Jesus to proclaim over us, you are mine. That if we... Reject Jesus, if we do not confess Him, if we deny Him, He will deny us. But if we confess Him before men, in that final day, He will declare, You are mine. And well done, my good and faithful servant. And then also, we noted that we are to remember that we have an invisible friend, the Holy Spirit, that He is powerful. Jesus instructed His disciples That the Holy Spirit would help them when they stood before men to know what to speak. The Holy Spirit is still at work today in our midst. It's easy for us to forget that God is here with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, when we are tempted to fear men, we should fear the God of hell above all. We should realize that God's love is great for us and He loves us better than the birds we should desire for Jesus to say mine, not for people to say, I'm pleased with you, you're mine. And we need to remember our invisible friend, the Holy Spirit. Then in the next segment there in Luke, chapter 13 down through verse, or verse 13 down through verse 21, Jesus there gave instruction about greed and about covetousness. A man stood up and say, said to Jesus, Make my brother divide the inheritance with me. And as we noted, it doesn't go over very well when people try and command Jesus what to do. (laughs) And so ultimately he ended up issuing a rebuke in what he said when he said there, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he gave the parable of the rich fool who was going to store up all his goods for himself rather than giving and being gracious to others and toward God. And his soul was damned because he revealed that his heart was not for the kingdom of God, but for himself. Well, we learned from that that To battle against covetousness, first of all, we have to be wary. We have to be on guard. We're in a war as believers. It's a spiritual battle. Which one of you is going to go into a war-torn nation with barbed wire strewn around and jeeps driving by with armed men on it, and you're just going to go in and stroll around like you're a tourist walking through Disney World? It's not going to be the same, is it? You're going to be alert. You're going to be aware of your surroundings. You're going to be wary. We are in a spiritual battle. And the danger is for us to fall asleep. The danger is for us to become lackadaisical towards sin. So thus Jesus says, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed, be wary, be watchful, and beware of covetousness. But then also, to battle against covetousness, we need to know the second half of this. We need to know what, and we need to know who our life is really about. Notice there, in chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Our life is not wrapped up in the amount of stuff that we have. But who is our life? When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall appear with Him in glory. Christ is our life. And we are to live for His glory and thus battle against covetousness, battle against intensely desiring to possess someone or something that God has forbidden us at that time by knowing that Christ is our life. And when we realize that, and we realize, as the Scripture says, Take heed, beware of covetousness. And when we realize, the scripture tells us that we are not to give in to covetousness and then it proclaims that for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have a possession in God himself. He is ours. And we are his. If we are in Christ Jesus, if we have truly believed, trusted in Christ, resting in him for our salvation we have a possession which is glorious beyond compare. And if we get a grasp of who Christ is and that our life is in Christ and what He has done for us, we're not going to desire other people's stuff and try and take it from them by unlawful means. Because we'll be content. Because we have a treasure beyond measure. So those are some things that we've looked at in the past. Today, as Jesus continues this practical exhortation, centered around the topic of wealth and possessions, he gives us some very practical principles to know how to battle against worry and anxiety. And thus, we will examine that today from our text, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can have one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things." But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Before we jump into examining this text and gleaning from these principles that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us, I want to introduce the subject of anxiety and worry and give us a few things to consider about worry and anxiety. I'm reminded again and again of the blessed nature of the Scriptures and how practical they are to help us battle against sin. How valuable if we apply the principles in the Word of God correctly and consistently, then we will not sin. We will be free from sinful anxiety and worry. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen necessarily in this life, that we will be free from sin. I don't believe in perfectionism. I don't believe the Scriptures teach perfectionism. But what I'm saying is, the power of the Word of God applied by the Holy Spirit is such That if we live by the Word, then our lives will be fruitful and we will be living righteously. It's like in a marriage. If we apply the principles of the Word of God to our marriages and both spouses are doing that, that will be a perfect marriage. If it's done absolutely consistently, that will be a marriage which cannot fail. And it's a marriage that will sing. It's not the principles, the truths of the Word of God that fail. It's us human beings as sinners who fail. So, considering the subject of worry, there are principles within this text which, if applied properly and consistently, will destroy sinful anxiety in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus gives us many of these principles I often call the sin of worry building dungeons in the clouds. Daydreaming is building castles in the clouds, right? You've heard it described as that. Well, he's building castles in the clouds. You can see that glazed look in his eyes. He's off in another world with a smile on his face. Worrying, though, is building dungeons in the clouds. It's daydreaming in one sense because it's not dealing with something which is present before you right here and now. It is looking into the future. Worry always focuses on something that is possibly going to happen in the future. Okay, by the very definition of worry. It's building dungeons because it's thinking that something bad is going to happen in the future. And there are people that are locked in the dungeon of worry because they build these dungeons in the clouds and they're tied up in chains in their sin of worry as we look at our text Jesus is specifically saying not to worry about food and clothing and as we apply it we'll go from that specific and work our way down even to general we'll start general I should say and work to specifics So let's ask a general question then. What is worry? As we're examining this, what is worry? First of all, worry is a form of fear. It's a form of fear. But it's a form of fear that always looks toward the future. Okay? When worry is described in the scripture, it's always talking about somebody thinking about what's going to happen in the future. It's not talking about a fear of something that is taking place right here and now. So, we could have a fear of something that's taking place right here and now. You know, a snake slithers down the aisle right here, and maybe we become fearful because there's a serpent crawling right down the aisle. That's right here and now. But if somebody is sitting here right now worrying that a snake might crawl in and go down the aisle, that's worry, and that's the difference between worry and fear. Okay? It's a form of fear, and we also call worry anxiety, and those can be used interchangeably. It's a form of fear that prognosticates. It prophesies. Do you realize that when we worry, we very often become false prophets? Because we are prophesying That something's going to take place out there, and it's something bad. I just know this is going to happen. I just know this bad thing's going to happen. I'm going to lose my job, and I'm not going to be able to provide for my family, and then we're all going to starve to death. It's a prophecy that something bad's going to happen, but as a very characteristic of worry, about 99% of the things we worry about never take place. You realize that? probably about 99% of what we worry about never actually materializes. And we become false prophets. Because we're looking into the future, future and fearfully anticipating calamity or evil to take place. So in the context here of material possessions, food and clothing, worry would be I'm not going to have enough food. My family's not going to have enough food. We're not going to have enough food. We're not going to have clothing. And thinking about that in a fearful sense regarding the future and thus sinning against God. But you know, in the context, worry is fearing going hungry or being naked, but in our Western society, we have extrapolated this blown it, way out of proportion, haven't we? Maybe we fear losing our big screen TV. You know, we fear losing a car. We fear losing our high-paying job and having to take a lower-paying job. How often are we actually in a position where we literally can be righteously concerned that we might starve to death in this nation? Not very often, right? Or that we literally could have a concern that we might not have a stitch of clothing to put on. We have a lot less to worry about than the people of Jesus' time and their society here in the United States of America. But yet we are a people that is characterized by worry and anxiety. But we'll talk about how we can battle against that. Some characteristics of worry, I've already mentioned it the fears rarely ever materialize. We may worry about having food and clothing, but we rarely ever starve to death or have to go naked. The fears rarely ever materialize. Worry can focus on most anything, can't it? Not just food and clothing. You could pick almost anything out there in this world and somebody somewhere is worrying about it right now. It can have many different objects. Worry also is destructive. This from the Bible exposition commentary. The word translated anxious in Luke 12.22 means literally to be torn apart. To be torn apart. Picture a piece of clothing and two strong hands grabbing each side and literally ripping it apart. It's describing there the sensation But it goes on in the mind when we are anxious. Do you ever feel like you're literally being torn apart? Like somebody's got something hooked up to the right side of your brain and the left side of the brain and they're pulling either direction and you feel like you're being torn apart mentally? It's describing the effects of worry. It's destructive. It can lead to depression, physical illness, having a foggy mind, racing thoughts, lack of sleep. The phrase doubtful mind, the commentary goes on to say, which is in Luke 12:29, means to be held in suspense. It's a picture of a ship being tossed in a storm. Our English word worry, it continues, comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means to strangle. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, said Cory Tinboom. It empties today of its strength. Does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today. Of its strength. So you see the vividness of these pictures, torn apart, strangled. Those of you who have worried, you know that that's what it feels like. I speak from experience. I have had to battle against this sin. Worry, as another characteristic of it, sinful worry simply displays a lack of trust in God. It displays a lack of trust in God. And it tries to play God. Only God knows the future and exactly what's going to take place in the future. And when we worry about the future, we're trying to play God. We're focusing on something in the future that He's told us, that's my business, not yours. You need to stay out of it. And worry will also reveal our hearts to us. Fear and worry will reveal what we desire the most. What does Jesus say down in our text in Luke? In verse 34, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know where your heart is at, where your desires are at, Ask yourself, what do I treasure? What are my treasures in life? That'll show where your heart is at. Then you know what? Ask yourself a further question What do I fear the most? What do I worry about? And that'll tell you where your heart's at. And that'll tell you what you treasure. Let's say it's a spouse that is constantly worried that their husband will die. And it's always worrying, worrying, worrying. That's showing where the greatest desire of the heart is at that time. The greatest desire of the heart is for that spouse. It's not for God. It's not for His glory. Because the person is willing to sin in consideration of that treasure. Because God says we're not to worry. We're not to have these feelings of dread regarding the future and what might happen in the future. So whereas, yes, we should treasure our spouses, we should love our spouses, if we are loving them so much that we are sinning, then we show that the spouse has just become an idol. And we are desiring and treasuring that person more than God himself. And more than obedience to God. This may have brought up a question to you. Well, isn't there a difference between sinful worry and being concerned? You know, it's okay to be concerned about things, right? The plan for the future. Well, a couple ways that concern is different from worry. Concern is characterized by peace. The scriptures tell us in Philippians chapter 4 that we're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make a request known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can be legitimately concerned that it will be characterized by peace. So we can think about and plan for the future in a righteous way but when we cross over to where we are in turmoil, thinking about some calamity or evil that might befall us, then we've crossed over into the realm of sinfully worrying, not being concerned any longer. Okay? Because the opposite of sinful anxiety is the peace of God. Which passes all understanding. According to Philippians chapter 4. Concern then is not fearful. It's not a fearful. Anticipation of the future. But it is one that is carefully thinking through. What will take place. And it can even involve. Some strong emotional wrestling. You know, Jesus in the garden, was he sinning? as he considered the cross? <laughs> no, we dare not say. He was impeccable, without sin, perfect. But there's some wrestling going on. It says he sweated like drops of blood. But ultimately, we see the peace of God enter in because even in his wrestling, what was his attitude? Not my will, yours be done. Now, of course, Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place in the future. He knew that he was going to go to the cross. But in his humanity, he did have to wrestle. And there are times we will wrestle. And the psalmist wrestled. But there was peace with the Father until the cross where he was separated from the love of the Father so that we can be at peace with the Father. Concern is not fearful and overcome by fear attitude but it is characterized by peace with God and concern as compared to worry is always focused on something that God permits us to focus on that God permits us to think about does God permit us to plan on making a trip and going into a city and buying and selling Yes, He does, as long as we're saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this. But, does God permit us to live in fear that we're going to go hungry? No, He doesn't, not according to our text. Jesus says, don't worry about food and about clothing. So, you see, concern has, as its focus, something God permits us to focus on, but worry, oftentimes focuses on things God says don't focus on. So those things by way of introduction. I want you to take 60 seconds here before we look at some principles in this text. And you have your handout. You have a pen or a pencil. I want you to go through in 60 seconds and see how many principles you can locate in the text that speak... Out against worry and that you could use to battle against worry in your lives so see how many you can locate in about 60 seconds and then we'll walk through and I'll show you the ones that I have discovered from the text I believe there are at least 7 principles here that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us to help us battle against sinful worry so go ahead and see what you can find and then we'll walk through this together Okay, let's talk about some of these principles the Lord Jesus Christ gives. and These can be divided up in different ways. So I'm not saying that you know I've discovered everything that's there in the text and this is exactly how it all should be worded and put together. You may have discovered a principle that I did not see as I examined the text. But here's some things that I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches to help us battle against worry. And then after we look at these, we're going to look at how we apply this our own lives when we battle against worry one principle that I saw there is that Jesus commands that we're not to do it we need to realize that we're not supposed to do it you know some people around us in our society seem to think it's a given that people are going to worry well that's just that's just what you do you just worry And sometimes it's put in the category of, well, I'm just concerned, even though they're fearfully anticipating a calamity that is outside of their realm of knowledge, and they've leapt into that category of false prophesying again. But the first principle, you shouldn't do it. Look at verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And then we can cross-reference that with, Philippians, which says, Be anxious for nothing. First thing we need to realize, God forbids us to worry. Thou shalt not worry. Look also at verse 29 for a moment. Jesus there says, Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. There again. Thou shalt not worry. Look down at verse 32. Do not fear. Little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We talked about this earlier. The command, most often spoken by people whose words are recorded in the scriptures, such as the Lord Jesus, God, angels appearing to people, it is do not fear. It's the most frequent command. Do you think that's something we need to hear? (laughs) Do not fear. Here, God thought so so that first principle don't do it thou shalt not worry another principle I think we see from the text is in verse 23 where it says life is more than food the body is more than clothing this principle is there's more important stuff to life than food and clothes isn't that true? Are there more important things to life than what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear? What about love for God and love for neighbor? Just as general category. And think about all the ways that can be applied. So when we get consumed with worry, then it detracts us from love of God and love for neighbor. Jesus gives us a principle here. There's more important stuff to life than food and clothing. Another principle is that God provides for the birds and the flowers. How much more does He care about His own children? How much more does He care about us who have a soul and He is created to have a relationship with Him? How much more does He care about us believers? who will live with him for all eternity, whereas the animals and the flowers have no souls, and they will, dry, they will die and they will dry up and perish. In, verses 20, in verse 24, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? You know, look, at, look around you at these ravens, these birds, basically crows. Look around you as they come in and they scavenge and they look for food. And realize, God is providing for them. These raucous birds that are coming in and stealing your lunch or whatever it may be. Have you ever had a bird steal something from you? <laughs> These ravens, they were they were scavengers. They would come in and they would, they would eat off of dead carcasses and they would come in and they would... Uh, Steal things, kind of almost like uh, camp robber jays. Heard of uh, blue jays, you know, collecting stuff? They can be called camp robber jays. Saying God is providing for them, God is noticing them, God's sovereignty extends over them. How much more? You, his chosen and beloved people that he gave his son to die for, as we consider the scriptures, how much more does he care about you than the birds? How much more are you? Uh, in verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spend. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You know, the beauty of the flowers. Rivaling even Solomon with his flowing robes and gold and silks. If then God so closed the grass, which today is in the field, tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Burnt up, dried up, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? So, that third principle there God provides for birds and flowers, how much more you, His own, His own beloved ones. Another principle found in verses 25 and 26 Worry is worthless. It's worthless. It accomplishes no good purpose whatsoever. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Have any of you been able to grow taller because you were worrying? Have any of you been able to extend your life by worrying? You know what? Worry can make you shorter and it can make you die quicker. Back to the matter. Worry is debilitating. Worry is worthless. And so, a principle to apply when you're worrying. Remember, this is worthless. (laughs) I can't accomplish anything by this. As a matter of fact, I'm even going to end up hurting myself by this. And I'm sinning against my God by doing this. So, worry is worthless. We're not to do it. Another principle, number five on my list, in verses 29 and 30, we ought to do better than the heathens. As God's children, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ought to do better than the heathens. We ought to do better than the pagans. Who don't have Christ. Who don't trust the word of God. What does it say there? Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. The heathens are focused on these things. This is what they're after. You ought to do better than the heathens. Better than the pagans. So applying this to your worry. Maybe this is a, a principle which would be helpful to you. Catch yourself in the middle of it and say, Hey, I am one who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. But I'm acting like a heathen. I'm acting like one of the pagans out there. I ought to do better because of who I am. In Christ Jesus and what God has done for me and what He has given me. Another principle. Principle number six. God knows what we need and He promises in general to provide for those needs. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. Verse 30. And your Father knows that you need these things. First of all, God knows. God knows everything. Everything. He knows what we need. And He's also sovereign. He's sovereign over the birds. They're not two sparrows that fall to to the ground apart from His will. So let's just reason together for a moment from the Scriptures. Come, let us reason together. We talked about logic this morning in the Sunday school class. Let's do a little sanctified logic together. Does God know all things? Yes, he does. The scriptures proclaim that very clearly, right? If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 1 John chapter 3. Secondly, is God good? He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He's perfect. Perfectly just and good. Does God love His own children with a love which we can't even fathom? Herein is love. That He loved us. He is love. And we love Him because He first loved us. Okay, so He knows all things, He is good. He is loving and He loves us. Is God powerful? All things are possible with God. Therefore, is He going to do what's best for us? With all of those things put together, and His love for us being so great, and He has the power to act, and He can only do right, is He going to do what's best for us? He cannot but do what is best for His children. Can we trust Him? Can we trust Him? As a result, I pray that we can. The general promise is seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What is our focus to be? On food and on clothing? No, our focus is to be on the kingdom. The kingdom of God. That means we're supposed to be focused on promoting the kingdom agenda. The kingdom where God is the ruler. Where the subjects are His children. Where His laws are the rule. We are to focus on the kingdom and accomplishing the goals of the king in the kingdom agenda. And then as a part of that, we have a general promise that he will provide for us that which we materially need. And then we have a specific promise that He will spiritually bless His own. In verse 32, Do not fear, little flock. Do you hear the tenderness in Jesus' voice there? Do not fear, little flock. It's a term of endearment. It's the only time that this term is used in the entire New Testament. Do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, I believe this is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. Previously, it was speaking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, seeking the kingdom of God. And I think then it follows that this also is speaking about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, being given to us. What does it mean there? It means God is going to give us and provide for us our spiritual needs in Christ Jesus. He cares about us deeply. And our deepest needs are met and will always be met in Christ Jesus. So God knows what we need and promises to provide. Can we apply that in our lives? Uh, A seventh principle in the text, give. 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 Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Putting this in conjunction with a parallel passage, parallel concepts that Jesus preached over in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about laying up treasures in heaven. Seeking first the kingdom means that we lay up treasures in heaven. how do we lay up treasures in heaven? Have you ever asked yourself that? Maybe you know that passage. Jesus says, we're supposed to lay up treasures in heaven where no moth and rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. Right? Instead of laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. Have you ever asked yourself, what does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? Here's one thing that it means, I think very clearly from this text, laying up treasures in heaven means giving away Things in this life. It means being willing to give to the needs of others. You know, somebody that is anxious and a worrier is somebody that is inherently a selfish person. Sinful anxiety and worry is inherently selfish. It will pretty much always have me, my, or mine connected to it. I'm worried about my family and whether or not we're going to have enough food. I'm worried about losing my job. You see, you can go through and stick that in all the way down the line, pretty much, can't you? People who are anxious and who are warriors very often are not givers. Consider the context of of money. Food and clothing here. People who are worried about losing their stuff are very rarely going to give stuff to people who are in need. Isn't that right? They're going to be misers. They're going to hang on to it with both fists. So what's a principle to battle against worry? Realize that it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Spiritual benefits beyond measure. And then give. Give to those who are in need. Oftentimes, when we're stuck in a rut of sin, we need to do the action that God commands and then ask God to grant us the grace to think about it the way that we should. So maybe we're so afraid of giving because we're afraid we're not going to have enough for ourselves that we don't give. And then maybe we think, well, I shouldn't give because I don't desire to give. Ah, but the scriptures say that we are to give. And here's the grace of God. Oftentimes when we do the thing that God commands us to do, God then changes our hearts. And He gives us the grace to desire what we ought to do. But if we don't desire, we should repent of the wrong desire and then we should do what God commands us to do. And ask God to give us the right desire and to carry on and carry forth. He says we're to give Or to give. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Due to the debilitating nature of worry, the anxiety, the racing thoughts, the depression that can result Worry can hinder us from being able to give even of ourselves in love to our fellow fellow neighbours or Christians. Worry can tie people up so tightly that they're afraid even to step foot outside of their house. And there are people living like that right now as I speak around this world. They're so worried, so anxious that they won't even step foot outside their own doors. And so they don't give because of their selfishness and their worry. So the principle here is give. Give. Now, I do want to make a comment of clarification here. Jesus says to these specific people at that time, sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. Is Jesus commanding each and every one of us here to sell every possession that we have and give everything away? I don't believe that he is. He's stating a general principle here of giving. And the reason that I don't believe that he is commanding this across the board, do you remember Zacchaeus? The wee little man, the wee little man was he? Climbed up in the sycamore? You know that song? Zacchaeus. What was his occupation? He was a tax collector, right? Remember in his encounter with Jesus, what he told Jesus? He said, that he, gives, he said, I give away half of my goods. And if I have wronged anybody, I repay them. And it was something like sevenfold. Jesus didn't say, half is not enough, buddy. Give it all away. Jesus said salvation has come to this household. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that Zacchaeus was saved because of his work of giving to the, the poor. But he was saying that was an evidence that his heart was truly changed and he was truly saved. And that was a flat, radical thing to say because the Jews despised Zacchaeus for his tax collecting and they didn't believe that he could be saved. But notice Jesus there didn't tell him to sell everything, but praised him for giving away half of what he had. So Jesus is giving a general principle, though, that we are to be giving people. We're to be looking for the needs of the saints. And in 1 John it says that if we who have this world's goods see our brother in need and shut up our heart from him, how does the love of God abide in us? Now again, just to clarify, we have to display wisdom because the scriptures also teach us that the man that does not provide for his own especially those of his own household is worse than an infidel so it would be irresponsible for a man with a family to say we're going to sell everything that we have and give it all away and thus not provide for the material needs of his own family so you see scripture interpreting scripture we put together the whole picture And we see Jesus is giving a general principle. We are to be giving people. And we can be giving people because of how much we've been given by God Himself. Okay, so there are some principles. Maybe you have found more in the text. Fantastic. Let's talk very briefly about applying those principles. We need to know how this works and we need to know how to apply these to our hearts and to our lives. Because... Here's a fact worry can tie us in chains. Worry can get in our minds and be racing around so fast that it freezes us up and we don't even know what to do or which direction to go. So we've got to find some way to get out of that rut when those things happen. We've got to know how to apply these principles. First of all, and you have these listed. We need to declare war against worry. If you're a warrior and you just put it on cruise control or in neutral and just try to coast through, you're dead. You're a casualty. You will not triumph over worry unless you become determined in your innermost being that you are going to fight. And you're going to fight it to the death. You have to be resolved that this is a spiritual war that's going on and you are going to fight or you will be a casualty. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. We don't sit around waiting for God to somehow zap it all away from us. That's not the way sanctification works. That's not the way it works. Sanctification works in that God has given us a book with principles which teach us how to grow and become more like Christ. And he has given us for his children, the ability to understand these and apply these and to thus become more like Christ. That's how sanctification works. So we've got to declare war against worry. Fight or you will die. So we have to command our sinful voice. Warriors know what I'm talking about. You've got a devil on your shoulder. You hear that voice in your head that's constantly telling you that this is going to go wrong and that's going to go wrong and this is going to go wrong and you have to say, shut up! You have to command that voice. You have to say, silence! I will not listen to you. If you don't do that, it's just going to keep racing. And it may even get more subtle. Declare war against worry. Secondly, you need to identify your worries, right? You need to ask yourself, what specifically am I worried about? You need to know what the problem is specifically if you're going to know how to specifically target it with the right weapon. Right? Somebody going out hunting for squirrels probably doesn't want to take a fifty caliber and go after it. But if you're going out hunting for water buffalo, then you don't want to take a BB gun. Right? You need to know what your target is to know what weapon to use. You need to know what your specific worries are, and then you need to take the specific principles from the Word of God, which directly counteract those. So identify your worries... And then identify how you express worry. How does worry show up in your life? This will help you to know if you are truly worrying. Okay? Maybe you know that if I get a tension headache, I've been able to connect that to the fact that I am now being anxious. And that's what brings these on. Because here's another characteristic about worry and about anxiety. Oftentimes people who are worriers don't even know that they're doing it until they start digging deep down into their own hearts and figure out what's going on down there. So getting down to the heart of it, figuring out what's going on and then figuring out how it is displaying itself in physical symptoms because it'll display itself in panic attacks. It'll display itself in tension headaches. It'll display itself in racing thoughts. It'll display itself in foggy, cloudy thinking. And so... We need to know how that's connected so that we then have another indicator that worry is going on. And those things are kind of like the uh, check engine now light on your car. Those things flash up, and you better be doing the scan to see what's going on in the heart, right? So, fourthly, get to the heart of your worry then. Ask yourself why am I worried? Why am I worried? Examine your desires. What do I want or not want so bad that I am sinning by worrying right now? You realize that's where that's where it all starts, right from the heart. If you want food and you want not to go hungry at an extreme level, then you will fear not having food and you will fear going hungry. The stronger your desire is not to go hungry, the stronger the possibility that you're going to simply worry about not having enough food. You see? So what do we do? We look for the desires of the heart and when we find desires that are too strong, we have to decrease those desires by directly applying the word of God to them. Directly applying the Word of God to them. So we've got to get to the heart of our worry. Where is our treasure? Is it food? Is it money? Whatever that treasure is, it must never take place over God. And then, fifthly, apply the specific principles from the Word to your specific worry. What do the Scriptures say? You know this passage. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you're not memorizing, meditating on the Scriptures, then you're going to be a casualty. You've got to have it in your heart. In your innermost being, desiring it, loving it, bringing it to mind, focusing on it, applying it to your situation. If you battle against worry, you should be in the Word of God, hiding it in your heart and applying it specifically to your situation. So, with those principles that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. It's in the very nature of sermons that a lot of information is presented and I pray that people will take maybe one idea from here and remember it. Because I may turn around two or three weeks from now and you won't even remember what the topic is. I know, I've sat in pews for many, many years. I turn around sometimes uh, a month or two down the road and I can't remember exactly the points of my sermons that I preached on and spent a couple days preparing for. It's the nature of not having photographic memory. (laughs) But I hope that with these principles, maybe you could even take one of these. Maybe there's one of these on this list that you say, oh, that applies specifically to what I battle against. And then here's how you apply it. You memorize that principle from the Word of God. So you know it. You don't have to you don't have to have the Bible open in front of you reading it to remember it, but you can pull it to mind whenever the temptation hits you to sin. And then you put off the sinful thoughts and you put on the righteous thoughts. You tell that sinful voice, that devil voice, to shut up and you kick it out. But you don't just leave an empty mind. You replace it with the direct principle from the Word of God that directly counteracts it. And sometimes you'll find that certain principles the Lord uses powerfully in your life at different times, even more powerfully than other principles. I was going through a, a battle against fear of people. And one, of the way that, one way that that manifested itself at one point in my life was I would start anticipating that people were going to treat me poorly. And a principle from the Word of God that was so helpful to me, I found in Philippians chapter 4, it said I was to think about things that were true. Honest, just, pure, lovely, of good reports. And I realized, you know what? If I am anticipating that someone is going to do something evil against me, I have just slandered them. And that's not honest. And that's not just. (coughs) And the Lord used that powerfully in my life at the time. But we've got to know the Word and we've got to have it in our minds to be able to apply directly to our situation. So take these these principles with you. I hope you've been able to write them down, but you can always open up this passage and look at them again. And then memorize these and apply them to the specific sins that you battle against or the specific temptations you encounter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us such glorious truths. And now I pray that You would give us the grace to apply these truths and to battle against the sin of worry. May You be glorified in our lives. May You be exalted in our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.